0: To the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Samantha Boardman. Latest book is called Ready for Anything, How to Build Resilience and Cope with Daily Stress if you're in the UK, and Everyday Vitality if you are in the US and other parts of over there. So I figured today we're going to be talking about stress. Um... I feel like the overwhelming majority of people that listen to this podcast are type A personalities. So I think that this will be very well received. Um, I, I think that when we're talking about stress, I think that everybody kind of knows about the big stress, whether that's a divorce or a death of a loved one, a painful breakup, a job loss. Uh, but not many people think about micro stresses. What are micro stresses?
1: Micro stressors are just those like little annoyances, frustrations, irritations that are embedded in the fabric of everyday life. And, you know, it's like the coffee that you spill, the dog that made a mess, the the commute, all those little things that really add up and accumulate and can really take a toll on our physical and mental health.
0: How would you best describe what a psychiatrist does?
1: Well, a psychiatrist, you know, I went to medical school at Cornell and I did four years of that. And then I did, I studied psychiatry to specialize in that. And, you know, what I think I went into psychiatry with that sort of big question of like, what's the meaning in life? What are we all here for? And, you know, what is a good life? And pretty quickly, you, you know, my priorities changed to how many milligrams should I prescribe? You know, and and it really, it, it really became a lot of of troubleshooting of how do I make somebody less miserable? And I actually got pretty good at misery. And, you know, somebody comes in, you evaluate them, you diagnose them, and you try to minimize their symptoms in some way. They, they, you ask them about saying, what is your chief complaint? You know, if it's somebody who has appendicitis and it's abdominal pain, but somebody who maybe is hearing voices or feeling depressed, And then all treatment sort of radiates out from that. And so I ended up going back to school and got a degree in uh, applied positive psychology that was essentially the opposite of everything I had learned in medical school. And it was about the science of health and, and wellness. And it was instead of pathogenesis, it's the study of disease. It was about salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. And that the two can go hand in hand. I think for a long time, we'd been seeing them as an either or, but how can we sort of approach it as a both and?
0: What would you say the big differences are between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Because like here in the UK, I know, for instance, that a psychologist, they can't prescribe uh, SSRIs, for instance. Is it like the same out in America?
1: It's exactly the same. You know, psychiatrists have gone to medical school. Psychologists um, are super and, and psychiatrists can prescribe medication. Psychologists are really well trained in a lot of strategies around you know thinking strategies and they understand brain chemistry as well um, and they complement one another. I think sometimes there's been almost like a little bit of a division between the two and I've always worked like hand in hand with them. I have tremendous respect for for psychologists. it's why I studied applied psychology applied positive psychology and think that we can collaborate a lot more. Oftentimes a patient might see a psychologist uh, weekly for treatment and then maybe see a psycho, a psychiatrist or psychopharmacologist who is a psychiatrist for maybe medication management every six weeks or something like that.
0: It's really interesting. And how did you personally change going from psychiatry to positive psychology? How did that change you?
1: Well, I actually got fired one day. I was seeing, I was seeing a patient. I, you know, it was a, a sort of 34 year old woman who I'd been seeing for a little while. She'd come to meet, like see me because she was overwhelmed and she didn't quite meet the criteria for depression or anxiety, but she certainly was far from thriving in her life, conflicts with her partner, conflicts with her kids, just overwhelmed in life in general, kind of what a lot of people experience. She just kind of felt like she was drowning. The water was splashing her in the face constantly, and she couldn't get ahead of it. And I did what I was trained to do. I thought, okay, let's make you less miserable. Let's work on some of these conflicts. How can we reduce your stress in some way? And one day after about six weeks, she came in for our weekly scheduled appointment and she said, you know what? I just hate coming here. All we ever do is talk about everything in my life that's going wrong. And sometimes I'm even having a good day and then I have to think about what can I complain about? And it's not helping me. It's putting me in a bad mood and I'm done. And, you know, I never saw her again. And of course I was offended at the moment and thought, wait a minute, maybe, you know, I, this, like there's something wrong here, but she was right. I had been so trained in illness. I hadn't focused on wellness or well-being. And I I think that as a psychiatrist and I have a responsibility to do both and I can do better for my patients to help them find wellness within illness and even strength within their everyday stress. And that's how I ended up going to study positive psychology.
0: What would you say that micro stresses can do to say our uh, biology, our psychology or our well-being day to day?
1: Sure. Well, the thing is, I think we tend to underestimate how Impactful these micro stressors are in our lives. We sort of dismiss them as, oh, I'm just in a bad mood. Who cares? And we're not taking into account how they do add up, they really accumulate, they amplify. And they, you know, people who report having a a large amount of everyday stress in their daily lives. It affects their heart rate long-term. It affects their body weight long-term. They're five years from then likely to have a thicker waist circumference. It also affects their ability to fight off the flu when they've done studies of taking a Q-tip and with the flu virus on it and sticking up somebody's nose who says they have a lot of daily stress they're much more likely to come down with the flu. They're much more likely to report symptoms that are unpleasant of the flu. And they know this because they ask graduate students to weigh the weigh the, their tissues and see how much mucus is in them. But people who don't have a lot of daily stress don't experience that as much. Also people who say they have a lot of daily stress don't mount um, as robust of a, an immune response to a vaccine for the flu. So that's like sort of the physical um, effects of lots of daily stress. But then also the mental health effects of lots of daily stress. I mean, it is an on-ramp to depression and anxiety. And so for me, I thought this was so important to study because people used to come to see me when they were sort of at this big inflection point in their lives, something, you know, like major had happened, a transition, a divorce, a shift in, you know, losing their job, something that was one of those bigger um, stressors. And yet, I've noticed over time that people are coming to see me just because they're overwhelmed by the everyday stuff, the daily grind, like the slings and arrows of everyday life, and these hassles that are so overwhelming. And studies show that we're actually unbelievably resilient to those major life events. But it's those little hassles and those little stressors, those micro stressors that we're much less resilient to. So I feel like we have the big R resilience, but we're missing the little art resilience. And so I really wanted to make this book dedicated to that and how, how can we sort of, you know, bolster ourselves and put some scaffolding around us to manage um, the, the daily stressors that seem to take such an impact on us. And it's funny, you know, nobody, nobody brings you a casserole because you couldn't find a parking space. Nobody, you know, no, there, there isn't that that social support around some of the, I think, everyday stuff. And we just sort of take it like, oh, this is just the way life is. And so it's like uh, having like that social support around us and actively connecting with others is one of the best ways for us to manage also our daily stress.
0: But one of the things that I think just in terms of the social stuff is that I've noticed that in my own life, if I get stressed, then it can become a vicious cycle, because if I get stressed, I shut down, I get grumpy, I get irritated with my loved ones. And then this makes me even more stressed. So, I guess, is the danger of this that it does become like a vicious cycle and that we will shut down instead of exposing ourselves more to it?
1: You know, it's exactly right. And I'm always just shocked with myself, even like, sometimes I even know better, but why, do, uh, why are our coping strategies so often undermining our ability to manage it? You know, as you say, you shut down, you tunnel inwards, you snap at your partner, you know, you, you don't work out, like you do the exact opposite of the thing that would help you feel strong. And it's, you know, so I, I really want to dig into like, what are the things that do make us feel strong? And then how do we get ourselves to do them?
0: One of the like things that I was thinking about in your book, I had a conversation with uh, Judson Brewer on the podcast and uh, he, he was um, he kind of talked a little bit about stress when he came on. And one of the things that it made me think was that one thing that I have kind of struggled with is that if I have say too many tabs open in my brain, too many, too much ambient anxiety in the background, uh, I'll resort to doing time-saving things uh, that I guess can end up as bad habits in themselves. So perhaps if I get so overwhelmed and there are mountains and mountains of things to do, then I'll think, well, I've got so much to do. I feel so stressed. Maybe I should just go down the pub with my friends or to try and save time. Maybe I'll go and get a McDonald's breakfast instead of cooking myself. A normal meal. Do you find that like these micro stresses and bad habits can kind of like reinforce themselves?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think you you mentioned something that's really important that, you know, the, the shortcuts that we I think resort to and think, well, I'm just going to get probably a boost from that, you know, fast food breakfast. And that will help replenish me and this sort of illusion of. Of pleasure. And, you know, it might be in the moment, but then, you know, pretty quickly, you have that like sort of spike and then drop in your blood sugar and how it just compounds it. And, you know, I remember when Gwyneth Paltrow got divorced, she talked about consciously uncoupling from her husband, but even what are those habits that we have that we don't even realize we have that we can consciously uncouple? Like maybe if you've had a late night Is it that's exactly when you, you know, want to head, you know, eat that fast food breakfast or that, how do you consciously uncouple those and, and actually create a new habit around that and replace it with something else? And, you know, sometimes it's actually making whatever that thing you want to do a little bit easier. It might be having some like oats in your, in your kitchen, you know, that you could make some oatmeal with that you can just be aware of and I've had some patients like who realize like gosh whenever I get surf food I even just put salt on top of it before I even you know have tasted it like all those habits that we do or you know oh when I get a coffee I'll always smoke a cigarette and so if you can consciously uncouple some of these habits and actually identify them like what am I doing that I just think is just me like oh that's just who I am well maybe that's just a habit you have and it's not really part of your core identity and I think sort of seeing that and consciously uncoupling them and can help you reimagine and rethink and unlearn those maybe counterproductive habits that you think are part of your self-definition but are just a habit
0: right and and in the book I believe you call it um cotton candy for the soul with, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which yeah which I love that term and I was thinking to myself that like that's exactly what we do in the modern world we become stressed and we're tired after a day's work. And what will we do instead of running a bath and reading a book or meditating, we'll sit on the sofa and look at our phones and these things often, I guess, make us even more tired, right?
1: Yeah. They drain us even more. And it's almost like this guilty couch potato syndrome. I think we develop and, It's actually, you know, when we do something that where we're feeling like we're connecting to somebody else or we're learning something or we're contributing to something beyond ourselves, like that's what's really replenishing and restorative. And over and over again, we get it wrong. I mean, we so often turn to, I think, those quick fixes, those shortcuts, as you say, that, you know, cotton candy for the soul mm. that maybe gives us a little burst of pleasure, but actually is really depleting and diminishing. And I know like patients would tell me like on a, like on a Monday, if they spent like the that sort of fantasy of like, oh, I just want to spend the weekend in bed and watch TV or whatever, and how unbelievably drained they feel afterwards versus like actually when they felt like they've done something and they've been active and they've really been embodying what they value in their lives, that they actually feel much more restored and revitalized.
0: Right. Definitely. And and you raise a really good point. B, and this was something which I would love to talk to you about, because in the book, when I was thinking about, uh, I'm treading on thin ice when I talk about this, but I was thinking about some of the habits which you described that I guess cultivate, uh, vitality. And I was also thinking about some typical mental illnesses, um, So I was thinking about something like anxiety and like the common thoughts that an anxious person would think. So they might think I'm going to screw up or I'm not going to be good enough or I'm going to have a heart attack or a depressed person might think um, I'm a burden or I'm worthless or nobody loves me. And in both cases, it's very, I guess, inwardly focused. Um, Whereas I guess like something like, Gratitude is very outwardly focused. I'm so grateful for my amazing family, my amazing friends. Do you think that maybe we need to think about ourselves less?
1: A hundred percent. And it's, you know, I think it's a saying, I don't know who I'm quoting here, but it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Yes, yes. And and, you know, I think sometimes self-immersion, as you point out, is our response to stress. And I think, you know, it probably is what was helpful in a, you know, if you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, you know, then afterwards you would self-reflect and and think about, okay, what are the ways that I can, you know, outrun it next time and to dwell on something. But You know, our lives are shifted, but maybe our brains haven't caught up with our daily lives that we're not being chased by saber-toothed tigers anymore. And we need to act more like a gazelle who maybe is chased by a lion. But if, you know, the gazelle escapes, they'll go back to the watering hole and they'll hang out with their fellow gazelles and drink water. And they're not then ruminating and self-immersing and thinking about this over and over again. And we have this tendency to ruminate and hang on to what's bad, and especially when we're stressed out. And feeling depressed, and that can be this on ramp to self immersion. And then you couple that with, I think there's there are these cultural messages, even in sort of um, the well being industrial complex, to focus on yourself, always put yourself first. You know, it's all about you, and you know, to a point, I would say. And it's often times when we are other oriented and outward oriented that we get closer to the version of ourselves we would really like to be and even with gratitude as you bring up i think that can be sort of distorted gratitude can become very self-focused like i'm so grateful because my life is really great and i really you know think mm-hmm. that you know i've got the best dog in the world and i've got this and it's nice but instead don't make gratitude about you for it to be most effective and beneficial. Make it about that other person, or, or that dog, or whatever. Like, what are you grateful for about them? And I think look into again, make it outward oriented. And we, I think, underutilize the power of gratitude when we make it all about ourselves and don't think about what are the qualities of that person you admire. Is it, you know, their thoughtfulness, their wisdom or whatever that is about them. And also we don't always express it to others because we assume they think they know how grateful we are, or we don't have time to express it to them. And instead, if you look at your sort of time usage, probably on your iPhone, you know, if there are five hours a day that you're spending on average on your phone, you might have had a moment to put it into words. And thirdly, I think people think it's really awkward. Like when you're going to say something to someone, especially, who you are close to, like somebody maybe you live with or a parent or a child or a sibling, but we underestimate how meaningful it is when somebody like to the, to the beneficiary of gratitude, but also actually how it really gives us a boost as well. So gratitude is great, but don't make it about you.
0: Right. I love that point so much. And you raise a really good point Then, as you said, I was thinking to myself that I guess some of the things that we call mental illnesses today um, in another ecosystem, they could have been highly adaptive. If you were anxious 7 million years ago, you know, you probably would have had more chance of surviving than if you were a Zen Buddhist monk in the middle of a desert sleeping in the middle of the day. Um, So I I really, really appreciate that point. And I also think as well, as you said, that we live in this time where things like self-care, um, where I don't think relationships have ever been less popular.
1: <laughs> it's so true. It's it's interesting you say that, you know, and people focus a lot on, you know, sleeping and exercise and food and you know, all those like sort of lifestyle changes. But like the single most important contributor to our well-being and happiness is our relationships, you know, and like how do we work on those? How do we prioritize those more deliberately?
0: Right. And I speak to people and they say, oh, you know, uh, independence and these things, they are the most important things. But I, I I completely agree. In terms of the relationships, what would be some of the best ways that we could connect with someone else, connect at a really deep level?
1: Well, you know, they—they're not all social interactions are created equal. And, you know, I think especially as at least in America, things were easing a little bit and people kind of went whole hog and they were saying yes to everything at the beginning of the summer. And I had a lot of patients who were like, wow, I have such like a social hangover. I can't, I'm just not used to this. And you know, whose, who whose muscles, whose social muscles had atrophied a little bit, but the research there suggests that the two most valuable social interactions we have are having meaningful conversations. And so, you know, you usually, you know, beyond a group of six that's hard to, to do um, and the second is feeling that you're loved and you belong and you know that you're underst- understood in some way and so I think that providing the feeling of felt love to someone else and you know and, and also experiencing that yourself is very important and it's hard to do it seems but actually it's not it's like being proactive for the pr- people you care about it's even it's feeling like car up with gas, you know, when you know your partner has to use it tomorrow morning, it's like those little gestures, those small acts of thoughtful kindness or gestures that are showing that you care about that person. And it's not, you know, sometimes when they say you give somebody too too much support, it can actually almost scare them. I feel like sort of, there was a study looking at people studying for the bar exam, which is like the legal exam lawyers take at the end of their three years. And when they had partners who were almost like overly concerned, like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Are you really okay? It sort of sends the message of, wait, maybe I think you're not okay and you're probably going to fail this. But how partners who, you know, just did those, those anticipating the, the needs of the, you know, their partner who was studying, it's, bringing them, you know, dinner or, you know, making the bed or taking care of the broken dishwasher, just those little gestures though. And also when you're in conversation, it's about like putting your phone away, giving that person your full attention saying, you know, when they tell you something, looking up from your phone and just saying like three simple words, tell me more and paying attention to what they respond to you. And I think that that's something we undervalue a lot. Um, And we don't have those, we sort of miss out on those opportunities in our everyday life when we are buried, you know, with our noses in our phone. And I think it was Alain de Botton said that the challenge of modern relationships is being more interesting than the other person's cell phone. And so knowing that it is like when you're with somebody and you're together, if you're having dinner or you're going for a walk, Just don't bring your phone or put it away or leave it in the bottom of your bag or your pocket. But I think just having it on the table, you're automatically unsharing the experience that you could be having together.
0: The best advice I've ever been uh, given on this to connect with someone emotionally is kind of instead of asking, what is it that you do to ask, why do you do that? And kind of you get to the the next level. Uh, One thing that I'm really also interested in is kind of linking these points together is I was thinking to myself that, as you say, maybe we do have these evolutionary adaptions to turn into ourselves, to kind of, uh, when we get stressed, to turn off into a shell. And I was thinking to myself that logically, what would make more sense after, say, as you say, we've, we've had some mini stresses, we've had maybe a bad day at work, and uh to come home and you know we could either just like lay on the couch and browse on instagram for three or four hours and swipe up on tiktok or we could as you said go for a walk with a friend take someone a nice gift logically we know exactly what would uh regenerate this more but i guess why don't we do that why don't we do that more
1: I think it's Groundhog Day for all of us. And again, like the assumption is that we're logic creatures and we're just not. And also, like even from a public health standpoint, the idea that information is going to change our behavior. And oftentimes it doesn't like knowing how many calories are in that Big Mac doesn't necessarily like people are just like, okay, you know, they're still standing in line to get it. So information, you know, we're not logic, you know, logical in our and rational in our behavior. And I think we have to sort of just put that aside and and recognize how just irrational we are most of the time. And it's not about information, but truly it's about and it's not even about motivation because, you know, motivation comes and it goes. You might wake up with the, like, you know, the, you're so motivated in the morning and by, you know, six o'clock in the evening, all that motivation to eat well or to connect or whatever is just evaporated. It's exactly when, you know, you're in a meeting and you reach for the donut and that's just, you know, we're, we're, I think almost told all the time we have to be more motivated or whatever, but actually we get motivation from doing things for others. And there's these studies showing that when we give advice to others um, and we show like, you know, I think we're, we're providing and we're sort of putting ourselves in the position of being a giver and somebody in the know and saying, you know, well, this is how I save money, or this is how, like, this is what I do when I'm really stressed out. I want to do this at the end of the day, but I actually would prefer to, you know, I know I'm going to feel better if I go for a walk, that when we are in that position of being a giver, we're much more likely to follow through then with that behavior we're recommending to somebody else. So I think being being an altruist and being a giver can actually be a tremendous source and, and wellspring of of motivation. I also I tell parents uh, and, and and also I, I tell just patients that we're often told you know that we're supposed to like be yourself as though that's good advice and you know, as you're saying, when we're stressed out, like being yourself is probably really not a good idea. A, because it sort of assumes that there's some one version of you. And we all know that there are many versions of ourselves and being yourself can greenlight those maybe, you know, counterproductive coping strategies. So I'll say, you know, be on you or do the opposite of the thing that you feel like doing, which might be, you know, being that couch potato or, Think of somebody you really admire what would they do in this moment and i think it's helpful to almost have a a buffet in your back pocket of people who you admire in different situations you know who you can think of like what would that person do because those those like sort of exercises can lift you out of yourself especially in those moments when you're so immersed in your emotions and um i think any opportunity to transcend yourself is a, an opportunity to get you closer to your ideal self.
0: Is that why I guess behavioral therapy works? Because if you change your thoughts, uh, then you may change your behaviors. But if you change your behaviors, you may change your thoughts. Is that what? Yeah.
1: It well, I mean, co- like behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is really all about your thinking, and it's great to you know to some degree because it's about countering problematic thinking patterns. Like if you are a catastrophizer, like if you think, oh my goodness, the traffic's terrible today. Today's going to be a horrible day. Oh my goodness, everything's going to go wrong today. Why does this always happen to me? My life is terrible. And you sort of start spiraling and catastrophizing. And I think when we're stressed out. We tend to do that. And what what cognitive behavioral therapy teaches you is how to To disrupt those thoughts and maybe be like, you know, maybe the coffee spilled on me, but this isn't going to, or maybe the traffic's horrible, but that doesn't, you know, this can stop here. But at the same time, I think it's also important to have behavioral activation therapy, which really underscores what you're saying. It's if you change what you do, you can change how you think. And I think a lot of most therapies assume, like they're predicated on the belief, if you change what you think, then you'll change what you do. But I'm also a big believer in if you change what you do, you change how you think. And so activating behaviors and experiences that help you feel strong and truly prescribing them, you know, because people can have an insight in therapy of, oh, well, maybe this is why I do what I do, but unless you're actually going to act on it and you're going to translate that into your everyday life, it might not be serving you in any way. Like you can say like, oh, I know I feel bad when I look at my phone all the time, but unless like that insight is helping you then limit how you use your phone or how it like sort of dictates your, your, your life, then it's not useful. So I'm a really big believer in how do you close that intention action gap in your everyday life so you are actually embodying your values
0: I was thinking about this a lot lately and I was thinking to myself I had this this one uh, bad day a number of weeks ago and I was like trying to think myself into a a better state and I just couldn't do it and I went to the gym after and and I just really like pushed myself quite hard in 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 there and I did uh various exercises and I come out then. I was in like a completely different frame of mind, and I was thinking to myself after that, perhaps maybe I'm not very good personally with controlling my mind with the mind. But do you think that it may be easier to control the mind with the body? What 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 do you think? I, I'm not too sure what you think.
1: No, I think we really underestimate and discount how much your body like dictates how you feel, and you know we talk about in the mind-body connection, but really the the body mind connection is so powerful. And even, you know, like you were having a rough day and you got yourself to the gym and it is that transformed mindset. Like your head is in a completely different place. I I even, I recommend to patients, even if you're super stressed out sitting at your desk, you know, you don't have to necessarily run to the gym, but just stand up, move around, walk around the block. Like those little interventions can really shift how you're feeling. Even what they call incidental ambulation, you know, that maybe you don't need, your gym outfit for but when you're just physically moving in space you were, it's going to put you in a different headspace and yet like as you say it's sort of groundhog day sometimes like you get to that same stressed out place and you're like oh i really don't feel like doing that thing but so i actually have patients record their mood before exercise and after just to reinforce how they, they how differently they're going to feel and you know we we are in, in in my field, we have, I think a tendency to think, well, if you just then take this medication and then, then you'll feel better. But there's a lot of things I think we can do in our everyday lives. And there's certainly some people who need medication, but that we can do to feel better. And one of the most reliable ways to instantly feel better is to get our heart rates moving a little bit, or just even to physically move in some way. And it is transformative. And I think it's something that the like therapy world discounts, um, a lot,
0: And as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself that if I was to kind of write a cheat sheet for to make myself feel better, I would uh, exercise, I would do a loving kindness meditation, and I would try and make someone else happy. So I'd I'd love to know when when you are, I guess, in uh, a therapy environment trying to make people feel better. Obviously, you mentioned that you would ask patients to score exercise before and after. What would be some of the other ones which... uh, you know, I guess, have the most profound effect besides exercise.
1: You know, because what was really important to me was I think there's so much messaging right now is that you've got to, let, you know, buy these things or download these things or like do things that are really expensive or you've got to sort of go to a retreat and go find yourself. Like well, I think one of the chapters is like you can stop worrying about finding yourself. And how do you counter what's really important with all these micro stressors and hassles is to counter them with uplifts. And so, because there are a lot of stressors you cannot get rid of and that are unpredictable and they're, that you can't do. But if you're just going to sort of live your life with the stressors and then have those negative reinforcing coping strategies, you're going to feel worse. So you have to be deliberate about seeking uplifts in your everyday life. So, you know, the and looking at a study of what helped people feel good, being in nature, 93% of people said just being outdoors. And we know like studies show that being in a park is just an immediate mood lifter and people also it interrupts what we we're talking about that like that rumination people you know when you're just going over and over and over again like a like a negative thought so it disrupts rumination and looking and i think it was a, it might have even been in england that looking at natural language studies that people uh when they're in the middle of nature and in a park that they're the words they use are as happy as the ones they use on christmas day so, I think just spending time in nature and not just by yourself, even with somebody else, makes it even better. Same with athletics. I mean, I think looking at studies of people who are engaged in a sport where somebody else is involved, they have fewer mental health days each month and they live longer. So, you know, I think, you know, when anything with somebody else is better and more fun, we know eating a chocolate with somebody else it's going to taste better if you're eating it at the same time as as they are than if you're eating it by yourself or if they're distracted looking at their phone so I think anything that you can do that is that is with somebody else and I think that's also a way to kind of create a commitment to something you're going to do if you say well I should go for a walk later or my friend's going to be waiting for me. And if I don't show up, I'm going to feel like such a flake. So I think that's another way to kind of incentivize yourself to to show up. And you always feel good afterwards. It's just getting yourself out the door. People engaging in a hobby, like something they do outside of their work that is just that they do for the love of it. They're even mediocre at, you know, that's something that's just inherently joyful, um, and and that's that's fun for them. People who play, playing with a pet is another sort of immediate mood lifter. Of course, being with family and friends that you know can go both ways. Sometimes when there's conflicted relationships, but for the most part, being with people who 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 we love is is also a mood lifter and lifts us out of ourselves or any opportunity to learn something is also one of those like sort of growth expanding modes where we have like a new perspective. And that sort of shifts us out of our, our sort of tunneling inwards.
0: I, I love those points so much. One thing I would love to, I guess, like pick up with you on is that I remember in the book um, you said something, which I agreed with uh, so strongly. You talked about a psychiatrist. Um, I believe the guy's name was Richard Friedman. Uh, perhaps, and he basically said that in this era, we've um, created these unrealistic standards for what mental health should be. And I was thinking to myself, like, how true is that? That you know, someone has a job interview at two and at one forty-five that they feel a nervous, and suddenly they've got an anxiety disorder, or uh, you know, someone <laughs> goes through a bad breakup and they they must be depressed, or they've had a bad day and they must be depressed um do you think that we have mistaken the feelings of being alive not in all cases but in what well, we're veering towards mistaking the feelings of being alive and being human for uh mental illness I guess
1: well I think it, it's it's such a great point and Richard Friedman actually was a teacher of mine and he he's at Cornell and he's unbelievable and wildly smart and really and his point was especially around medical students and how that telling them that like expect to be really stressed out, like this is a stressful endeavor and you will be stressed out, but it will also be unbelievably gratifying. And um, it will also, you know, be a, an incredible journey and experience, but you know, how, good stress can go hand in hand uh, with with learning and with growth. And I think it's something as a society, we've become increasingly intolerant of stress of any form and discounting it and not recognizing that sort of anything we're working hard for can be quite stressful at times, but we're also typically at our best when we're slightly stressed out. Um, there's that sort of desirable difficulty that things that challenge us in a, in a way where we feel stretched and we're sort of pushed to the brink of our competence is when we really are functioning like at our our finest and when we're sort of dismissive or we won't tolerate anything other than smiley faces and unicorns and like a stress-free life and living on an island, you know, drinking margaritas all the time. And I think discounting the value of having a sense of meaning and purpose-driven life that can be stressful at times and might not be all those sort of rainbows and unicorns at all times. And that our willingness to sort of then, pathologize it in some way, or, you know, to say, well, then there's something deeply wrong with you and negative emotions. are. I mean, I, I, I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist, but I'm a big fan of negative emotions. Like we have so much to learn from them and they are, as long as we're seeing it as data, you know, what, what is this telling me this experience that I'm feeling and when we're ruminating about it or we feel paralyzed by it, or we're not acting on it. I think it can be then it's problematic and we're not seeing it as data is how can I act on this? And one strategy I talk about in the book is really, instead of just feeling generally bad or, uh, or I just don't feel good. Cause we, I think have this binary bias of I'm good, I'm bad, I'm happy, or I'm sad is really being able to drill down on, you know, find the words, be as specific and precise as you can, like even whip out a, a thesaurus to think about like exactly how are you feeling? And then that will help you take it less personally and see it as less pervasive and less permanent and also act on it. And we, we have to sort of, I think, put ourselves, I think in that position of almost being a detective, because sometimes we'll just be like, I know I'm in a bad mood, but I can't even remember why, you know? So I think that sort of when we drill down on it, you kind of can get away from that just general cloud of darkness following you, but also to embrace that. what I talk about this emo diversity. I mean that we, you can have a, a, a tough day, but you can also find some happiness in it. You can also laugh within it. You know, you can also see some joy within that. And, you know, in studies of, of patients, somebody who was a care- of, of caregivers or of somebody who was dying, those who were able to sort of savor these little moments of, of joy, of humor, of being able to sort of find those obviously fared much better. And even there's so much negative news out today. And, you you know, to the point that some people are just avoiding the news altogether but one way to make sure that you can not feel so overwhelmed and overburdened by all this negative news and hopeless and helpless in the face of it is if you counter it with positive emotions, because those remind us not just to be in defense mode, and you're then in discover mode. And when you you counter those, like you know, these negative emotions with positive ones, you're much more likely to to learn from this this information and even act on it in some way. So. I think sort of to, to go back to your question, I think we are very quick to diagnose somebody, you know, if they're not happy all the time, but also I think our coping strategies that have made us more isolated and I think more lonely and, you know, we're, we're um, sort of, we've engineered so much, much of that sort of movement and outdoor time out of our lives as well, that a lot of those other coping strategies we would have turned to were not, and we're doubling down on our misery.
0: I would love to um, just kind of just run through, I guess, like an exercise, which I feel could bring a lot of this stuff home. So if someone has been experiencing, I guess, kind of micro stress going through their plans, which you talk about in the book, and I think we've discussed quite a fair bit of them today. What would, I guess, the starting point be? And I guess, what should the next few steps be after someone experiences uh, some of these things we've talked about?
1: Sure. Like if you're like having a rough day, you know, I do recommend think who's somebody you admire, what would he or she do in this moment? And also then I think just to keep in like a long-term way, I talked about before closing the intention action gap. And I want to give you a strategy that I think is really valuable to deploy is, and it's called making a whoop goal, W-O-O-P. And it, and I'm going to explain it here clearly is The W stands for the wish that you have. And what would that be? Maybe it'd be like, I'm going to exercise three times a week, make it pretty specific, whatever that wish is. And then the first O is what would the outcome of that be? And be very specific, put it into words. Like, how would you feel if you were to do that? And the second O is, well, what's the obstacle? What is getting in my way? Oh, I feel like I don't have time or I just don't have the energy at the end of the day, whatever that is. And then the P stands for what's the plan you're going to make. And this will help you sort of operationalize what you're, you've got going on in your head. And so you even, you know, positive thinking doesn't get us anywhere. You know, like what are you doing that's actually embodying that? And just as a third uh, exercise to consider is think about what you value most in your life. Like what are your top three values? What is most meaningful to you? And then think about how you spend your free time. And oftentimes that my patients are surprised by how little overlap that is. And we work on, you know, creating more, um, you know, greater overlap, because I think that when you're embodying what you care about and your values and what matters to you, you are going to be far more resilient in the face of all of those micro stressors.
0: I I feel like like one of the things I've been thinking about in this conversation is that um, very often we can identify with traits or ideas or even things that we don't want. Like we will say, I'm not a people person. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not driven. I'm not capable of getting a, a PhD or building a business. And I feel like we often can let those things define us. And uh, I mean, I've experienced this myself, and I guess uh, that if I guess if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them. Um, What would be some of the best ways for, I guess, changing the story that we tell ourselves and interrupting some of those self-defeating patterns that we have?
1: What's well, amazing how, as you highlight, like we get, we cling to these versions of ourselves. And this old psychiatrist once had said to me, the purpose of therapy isn't to change your present or to change your future, it's to change your past. And I think what he really meant was it's to rethink all those assumptions you have about yourself and those little stories you tell, because maybe they're partially true, but You know, I think when they're limiting us and interfering with our willingness to actually, you know, be not be ourselves, and that those can really put us in this box of an idea that, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm not, it's not that I'm not a people person or I'm not a morning person. Maybe that's just sort of a preference or maybe that's a habit that I have. And when you act out of character or you even challenge yourself in some way, or you maybe take that course that you felt like, oh, I could never be that, or that's just not me. I think when we're actually sort of, you know, well-intentioned phonies even, and, you know, we're not being authentic in a way that we're actually being our most authentic is that we can lift ourselves out of this sort of cage or this almost, police tape we've put around ourselves and we're acting out of character and truly embodying those things that feel meaningful to us and that we care about and that maybe have held us back or we're oftentimes i mean at, at the core of i think those lines we draw around ourselves and that we're the cages we put ourselves in is fear right it's fear of of shame embarrassment you know especially as we get older i think that the terror of being bad at something. We've been so good, you know, we've kind of limited our lives into being, you know, pretty good at the stuff we've chosen to do. And I think it's only in those moments when we're often around smaller children, like a friend's kids or our own, that we're sort of asked to stretch ourselves and do those things that are kind of embarrassing or get your hands dirty or finger paint or do those things that feel deeply out of character, but that can actually be unbelievably liberating. And I think actually surrounding yourself with multi-generations too and trying to like keeping to make friends and doing new things and learning as you get older and you know just what's the saying you don't get old because um you you, you don't stop playing because you get old you get old because you stop playing and I think there's real value in especially you know for people after 50 to you know be thinking of what's different, what's new, and to bring that child's mind and curiosity to things. I think the moment we become like, uh, you know, I know what's going to happen, or we're sort of know-it-alls, I really think we have to be learn-it-alls.
0: Of all your experience, uh, of all the classrooms that you've been in, all the patients that you've seen, you've written this amazing book. Uh, This could either be, I guess, advice you've been given, or advice you've given to others, or I guess just something which you've thought up, what would be your best advice for positive mental health?
1: Uh, I would say make an effort and be with other people in meaningful ways and go out of your way every single day to have a meaningful connection with somebody you love or with a stranger. And probably there won't be a phone involved. Probably it'll involve involve a a phone call or a Zoom or a face-to-face conversation. And don't be afraid to go deeper. And it's okay to talk about the weather. But if you can have a meaningful conversation where you feel like you've learned something about the other person and even somebody you don't like, I think everybody knows something you don't and you have an opportunity to learn from them.
0: Take an action getting out of stasis is a huge component. And very often, as we talked about earlier, we have the tendency when things go wrong to retreat into ourselves and to not take any action at all. For the person listening today that um, has you know heard the amazing strategies, how long before, I guess, they do these things, uh, how long would you advise that they try these things out for themselves until, I guess, you know see some changes how long could someone set themselves a challenge for
1: i mean honestly i think you'll feel better really quickly and that th- that's really what i wanted this book to be about is accessible ways to give yourself uplifts in your everyday life and that you don't feel like you've got to spend a lot of money or go on a vacation how do you embed them in your everyday life and that here's the thing like they're not expensive but you have to prioritize them and you will feel better very quickly by even, you know, changing what I'm saying, making deliberately connecting with others, deliberately contributing to something beyond yourself, and also deliberately challenging yourself. And again, these are, as you say, they're all embodied. They're not happening in your head. And I think it's through those actions that you'll get an immediate lift.
0: Right, right. It's, you don't need to go to burning, man. You don't need electroconvulsion therapy. <laughs> no. Buy the book. <laughs> I love it. Um, I just want to fire through some quick fire questions, which we ask at all uh, the end of all our podcasts. Uh, so obviously, so today we were discussing um, your book, Ready for Everything, Ready for Anything or Everyday Vitality. What have been some of the books which have impacted your life the most?
1: Sure, I have loved Think Again by Adam Grant. Amazing, Grit by Angela Duckworth. Uh, I have loved, um, uh, this actually, I'm just reading right now, Carl Pillener's book, it's wonderful, called Fault Lines. I'm in the middle of that, and it's about fractured families and how to mend them. And Wiser by Dilip Chest, about the neurobiology of wisdom and how we can become wise at any age.
0: My last question for you before I ask you to sign off and signpost uh, these guys to wherever you'd like them to go is we always ask at the end of each podcast, what makes a life worth living?
1: I think a meaningful, purposeful life that is beyond oneself.
0: Amazing. Where can these guys connect with you? And where would you like to signpost them to about the book or any way you like?
1: Sure. And in the UK, it's ready for anything. In um, the US, it is everyday vitality. And on Twitter, I'm at at SamBMD. And on Instagram, I'm at positive prescription, positive underscore prescription. And I have a bulletin newsletter. Please sign up for that. And thank you. I love talking to you. I love your podcast. And I think it is uplifting. And always an opportunity to learn something in any day. You learn something is a good day. So thank you.
0: My pleasure. It's been such a pleasure for me. So I can only thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you.